listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. And today, Wade, you and I are going on a quest. A quest? Kevin, will will there be treasure at the end of said quest? (laughs) Oh, cinematic treasures, mayhap. Listeners, we're going to be reviewing the newest film from Pixar, A Magical Journey into the Land of Fantasy. Onward. We're also going to be delving into the land of matrimonial bliss with our review of Autumn DeWilde's latest adaptation of the Jane Austen classic, Emma. Onward and Emma, Kevin, I think that's a match made in heaven. Good one, Wade. All right, we're going to get Warrior Z95. Let me hear you say, I'm a mighty warrior. I'm a mighty warrior. Morning, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> Down, bad dragon. Back to your lair. Happy birthday, Mr. Adult Man. Oh, Mom. Hey, buddy, don't wipe off my kisses. What? You're wearing your dad's sweatshirt. Oh, you know, finally fits. Oh, my little chubby cheeks is all grown up. Okay, okay, Mom, I gotta eat something before school. Listeners, this is episode 239 of Seeing and Believing. That was a clip. From Pixar's Onward, we're going to jump into our review of Onward here in just a moment. Kevin, we were off last week. You were traveling for your wedding anniversary, and I knew it was your wedding anniversary because you you told me, and also because I have the Time Hop app, and up popped the one picture we have of us together, (laughs) and your eyes are closed in that picture. Yeah, well, I I think uh, it was you that correctly divined that the reason I closed my eyes is I didn't want your wife's camera to steal my soul. So, you know, you can't be too careful. (laughs) No, no, you can't. And it's really hard to do these days with all the smartphones. Um, But as I go back through your Facebook, all of your pictures, your eyes are closed. So, I, I mean, I guess the secret's out now. Yeah, well, you know, I gift it to the the world as a free gift, you know, to to help them also prevent any soul theft that might otherwise occur in, you know, our, our digital age. Yeah, well, I, I, th- I think that's really good. Listeners, in a little while, we're going to get into our review of Emma, period, uh, a, a stylistic flourish at the end of that film. And Kevin, I know it's not true. But is it okay if I just say, hey, yeah, you know, I set up Kevin and Kylie. Like, I set them up, and, you know, I was the matchmaker. I was the Emma of that situation. <laughs> uh, you can say whatever you like in the privacy of your own home, Wade. <laughs> but in public, I would prefer that you not pose as the person who um, set me up with my wife. That just seems, you know, a little bit beyond the bounds of our friendship. You, you have to content yourself with what you got. Okay. Yeah. It's like, you can say whatever you want. Just say it to yourself when no one else is around. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people tell me that. So it, I totally, uh, totally understand. <laughs> Listeners, we're going to hop into our first review onward directed by Dan Scalon, Pixar's newest creation sees the animation studio returning to its bread and butter, namely non-sequel original adventures. Here's the movie's official synopsis to get us started. Two teenage elf brothers, Ian, voiced by Tom Holland and Barley Lightfoot, voiced by Chris Pratt, go on a journey to discover if there's still a little magic left out there in the world. They do this 
in order to spend one last day with their father, who died when they were too young to remember him. Kevin Onward definitely owes much to its fantasy-laden setting. It's a quest movie filled with dragons, magic, and yes, it is a Pixar movie, even the occasional tear. Now, we came to some sharp disagreements about Pixar's previous film, Toy Story 4, even though you did have a lot of good things to say about it. And I'm interested in knowing whether we'll agree on this one. So, a simple question just to get us going. What did you think of Pixar's Onward? I, I feel like the experience of watching Onward is a little bit like taking part in a D&D adventure that's, you know, where the DM, the dungeon master, is maybe not the best at setting up and telling uh, a, a really great story, but their enthusiasm in telling that story kind of makes up for a lot. That strikes me at least as kind of what's going on with this film. I don't think it's a great picture. It's it's fine. It kind of gets the job done. I, do, I don't think that Pixar's reputation for, for quality is really going to take a hit with this film. I think there are parts of it that feel maybe maybe a little bit perfunctory in the the visual design and in kind of the places that it goes with the story. It's not it's not the most surprising Pixar film. I feel like the best Pixar films tend to catch me off guard a little bit. This one felt pretty standard, which isn't necessarily a bad thing when it comes to Pixar standards. But yeah, I, I had a good time with it overall, um, even if I was maybe hoping for a little bit more at, at the end of it. Uh, what did you think? Well, I will say this. I know that when you begin a review with a metaphor, it's usually not the best sign <laughs> for that film. Uh, but you kind of you brought, know me well. Yeah, you brought it back around. Uh, I, I think I agree with you in some senses. You know, this is a quest movie. I'm not the biggest fan of quest films. There are notable exceptions. I like the Lord of the Rings stories, the, the films as well. I don't care too much for the overall plot of the movie in the sense of like, oh, this is getting me really excited. I want to see, you know, where they go next. But I definitely was interested in the emotional crux of the story. And I had a lot of fun along the way. Now, towards the end, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I just, I want to, I want to see them get to where they're trying to get to and to find that resolution. But there's a lot of heart in this movie. I, I think visually, I, I actually, I think it's pretty good. It's nothing revelatory. It's definitely not on the same level as something like Toy Story 4. But we enjoy the characters. We're rooting for the characters. And we care about this quest. We really do care about this quest. This is the story of two sons who want to see their dad one more time and they are racing against the clock in order to do that and so at the end of the movie i'm just kind of like you know moving my hands around and and and, and just getting very fidgety because i want that to happen for them i do care about it and that this big kind of final climax i'm invested which says more than 
other films kind of like this, where it's like, okay, yeah, we got the big fight scene. I actually care about what's happening, and I did find it emotional. So I think there's a lot to like in the movie, even if the plot um, is, I don't, I don't know if I would say cliche, but it's definitely well-worn. Yeah, well, you know, here's here's the thing that's interesting to me about this film is that it there the parts of it that are a little bit paint by numbers and the parts of it that end up working really well are kind of in entwined with each other and in the end almost inextricable from each other. So you mentioned the basic outline of the plot the, being about these two brothers who you know their their father has died and they one of them. Uh, didn't even really get to know his father. The other one was very young when the father passed on. And the plot gets set in motion when they discover this magic spell that's supposed to bring him back. And the, they spend the rest of the movie essentially trying to make that spell work. And you expect this to be the sort of picture that is, is relatively relatively familiar. You expect there to be a treatment of loss. You expect it to be a lot about their their desire for their father and their maybe their regrets around their relationship with him. You expect it to essentially revolve around this parental relationship or the, the absence thereof. Mm-hmm. What I think this film does really well is that it eventually goes to a place where you realize it's not actually a story about two sons uh, looking for their father or coming to terms with the loss of their father. It's really more about two brothers trying to figure out who they are to each other with a father who's not in the picture and the ways in which their relationship with their father or the lack of that relationship mirrors or echoes their relationship with each other. I think this movie actually has a a pretty fresh take on brotherhood that we aren't necessarily we don't necessarily expect to see in a, an animated film that involves dead parents and I think that that overall ends up making the film feel pretty worthwhile once it's kind of worked out it's uh, it's jitters with the, you know making kind of these jokes about living in a fantasy world that's moved on from fantasy. I, I think that's maybe the weakest part of the film for me, where it's making kind of these jokes that feel pretty pretty easy, I guess, not lazy necessarily, but there's not a whole lot that seems fresh about talking about you know dragons breathing breathing fire but forgetting about it or a centaur who doesn't know how to run anymore those parts don't seem as like where the film's heart is necessarily i think once it moves beyond that and gets into more interesting territory that's when it begins to shine yeah i you know i like those jokes i think they're i think they're pretty funny i think they work fairly well and i I like the idea. I like the premise behind this post-magical world. And it, it I think somebody somewhere is probably going to look at this as this uh, Christian parable, as this world, uh, this medieval world that saw the spiritual in everything and this secular age now that uh, denies spirituality uh, overall. And I, I think that's that's kind of fun to, to look at. And then also we, we get to this uh, point in the film where the mother of Ian and Barley, 
she says that near the end of their father's life, he was searching, searching for a way to uh, live on, searching for something kind of greater. And of course, it reminds me of, of you know, uh, Christianity and this idea of uh, the resurrection or wanting to live on, wanting to, or yearning for something more than this earth and what it offers. And so I think that's kind of this fascinating idea of, of what we hope for in the midst of death. So I, I like that. And I think you're, I think you're right about this story in that it is more so about the sibling relationship and the way that that plays into the, the dead father is that this father has, he's passed away and Ian never met him. His mother was pregnant with him when he passed and, and Barley only has a handful of memories with their father. And so this is less about personal direct loss and more about a, it's more about characters working through the absence of a father. And we get Ian at the beginning of the movie and he hears about his dad and he hears about his dad's boldness. And you get the sense that Ian probably struggles with his own insecurities more so because he didn't have someone to lead him. So while he doesn't necessarily miss his dad specifically, he misses that role, which makes for a good transition to see how siblings can sometimes fill that role and how siblings can lead us, even if our parents are around, how siblings can walk us through or help walk us through these stages in life. And I think the film does a pretty good job of working through that together and just allowing these characters to kind of have fun and hopefully kind of discover who they are just by being with one another. Yeah, I think that that's, that's when the film begins to, to really find itself is when it really starts to dig in deep into the dynamics of that relationship between Ian and Barley and less on the the other stuff around them, I guess. I think that it's unfortunate that in a film that's essentially, at least nominally, about going on a quest, that it's almost like the quest feels a little perfunctory to me. It feels to me as if there's not very much to the plotting. It's more like the... You, you almost can feel the screenwriter's hands kind of figuring out, okay, we want these characters to have these revelations about one another. So let's, you know, have them move from point A to point B, but it's not really about them. There, there's not really a whole lot of interest in the specifics of how they do that. It's more just, we, we need to get them into these positions for certain realizations to occur. And I think the seems for me they show a little bit in that the 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 film ending climax is is fun from a action choreography standpoint i i enjoyed watching uh ian especially kind of come into his own and realize his own bravery the specific form that takes where there's kind of this this duel with a magical creature 
doesn't really feel like it comes from anywhere. It's just sort of there because you need an action climax of some sort and not because it really feels necessary, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think it does make sense. And I think for me, it's it's fascinating because th- that action sequence and some of the ideas and some of the, even the imagery are a little strange. And, and maybe maybe there's texture to it, but it did seem a bit random. So for instance, there's this monster at the end and the monster is made up of the concrete and the modern building materials around it. I don't I don't really know what that means. I think it's supposed to mean something. But as I as I'm kind of going back to, I care about these characters. And so it almost doesn't matter for me. I I do like the texture of this environment. I do like that this is a world that has has gone to you know, it's a post-magic world. And the architecture reflects that. You see skyscrapers, but some of them look like castle spirals and you have fast food restaurants and you have stores and they have uh, these sort of fantasy laden names. And it, I think all that's kind of fun. But what I go back to is these characters really trying to understand uh, their their place in the world. It's very much this character driven story, which Pixar does a great job of doing most of the time and and i think the emotional center of that movie makes it a step above uh what what i i feel like we usually encounter with you know your average animated movie yeah i guess for for those aspects of the world to feel fully effective for me i i guess i would need a little bit more of that texture that you're talking about if if we're using that word in the in the same sense anyway i guess when i when i watch this film it it doesn't feel like there's there's not a whole lot of personality i guess to the character designs you know barley and ian and the elves are just kind of they're just kind of purple people <laughs> the uh the trolls are just kind of big green people the centaurs are just centaurs there's not a whole lot of personality to the character designs and even in the way that the world is built out you know uh, dan scanlon actually worked on uh, pixar's monsters university and it feels to me a little bit like the monsters inc monsters university world where it's basically just our world with you know some little twists you know meant to communicate that you know, this is just like our world, except monsters live in it. Or this is just like our world, except fantasy creatures live in it. And it, I guess that's what I mean by it. there doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of freshness to it. It feels almost as if Scanlan is recycling a lot of the the work of the monsters universe and just sort of slapping a fantasy veneer over it so that it's not that there's anything necessarily bad about it. It just feels a little bit derivative from an earlier film and not just an earlier film an earlier pixar film i i like uh, monsters inc i like that world uh and i like monsters university I, I i don't know if it's as developed as some of the other pixar environments but i i i think it's you know a lot of fun i think we get some great sequences here uh, and and part of that does go into some of the character development so if the elves are 
a little underdeveloped, we get some great fairies. Uh, for instance, there's a there's a group of fairies, and they are these kind of macho biker gang types. And there's the sequence where they interact with the main characters in the movie, and it's great. It is very very funny. It's a you know this kind of standout uh, sequence, and then you get uh, the van that these characters drive. So Barley's van, which is a lot of fun and it's like its own character and it gets a great moment in the movie a really big moment those uh, touches I, I think are enough to uh, make it succeed and then uh, t- to be honest I, I was pretty emotional at the end um, did you did you find it emotional at the end Kevin and I, I know this is almost like a Pixar given and it doesn't forgive all of its sins but uh, it's kind of like with Coco I was okay on the movie uh, and the end really kind of brought it back to me um and in this one i I thought was pretty emotional and um i thought it had a pretty good ending i i agree i so full disclosure i was kind of i had my emotional guard up for this film because i know especially in recent years it does feel like pixar kind of has a certain way that they go about plucking at your heartstrings and over time that approach has gotten less effective for me it it feels a little bit rote by this point to to me so i went into this kind of thinking like okay i know by now i know pixar's tricks and they're not going to get me this time and that pretty much held true for maybe the first half of the film or even maybe the first two-thirds when i thought i knew what this movie was about i was like okay you know dead parents childhood trauma whatever you know barley has this thing where he feels a little bit like a screw-up and so there's that dynamic between the brothers so there's going to be this whole self-realization angle where you know barley realizes he's not a screw-up and ian realizes that his opinion of barley maybe there's more to him than he originally thought. Okay, I got this. Just don't try and manipulate me too much. But when this gets into the its final act where you kind of realize it's not it's not going completely according to that template that you might expect, that really actually did it did it got me again. Those Pixar guys, they're those devilishly clever guys. They they know how to tell a good story and to maybe zig where you expect them to zag and i think they overall do it do it again here maybe not in the the character design and the world design but in the end the the character arcs and the overall story eventually find that sweet spot so i I think it i think it does end up working for me overall and i my opinion of this film uh grew more generous over its runtime probably due to that yeah, no, I it, going into this movie and knowing, okay, it's Pixar, and it's a story about uh, a deceased father, you almost you almost think that they have this formula, and they're like, okay, hit X, Y, Z, and it will produce a tear. Uh, and, and to some extent, this story isn't all that creative, as we've been talking about. But as we, we go further, we do see the importance of family and we see the power of parents fathers of course but also mothers we we see the importance of being i don't know shown the ropes we need somebody who will walk us through these difficult portions of life and model what it's like to grow up and 
as I mentioned too, the magical elements I found fascinating. And I think there's something there about our kind of this, this yearning for, for more, wanting more, uh, that definitely fits into my Christian worldview. And, um, so overall, probably mid tier Pixar, um, but, um, one of the better films of the year so far. I mean, it's only the beginning of March. We haven't had a lot to choose from, but I, I had a good time with this. Definitely mid-tier Pixar, but mid-tier Pixar is nothing to sneeze at. Listeners, that is our review of Pixar's Onward. If you have seen this film and have any of your own thoughts about how well it works and any of the things we talked about or some of the things that we didn't get to in our review, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com and you can always hit us up on Twitter. Don't go anywhere. In our second segment, we're going to be delving into Georgian England with our review of Emma. Listeners, we want to take an opportunity and thank everyone who has supported our Patreon campaign. When you do that, you not only support seeing and believing, but you get a lot of great stuff. We've got perks for those who support us. It's really easy to check out our Patreon campaign. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. One of our favorite donation levels is the what can you buy for $5 level. Kevin, that's a great question. You've been out of town. You've been resting. You've been relaxing. And I want to ask you this question, and I'm excited to hear the answer. You've, given, <laughs> you've got some time to think about it. What can you buy for 5 bucks? Yeah, so we we just finished reviewing Onward, which has that whole D and D tie in to it, where you know Barley's kind of this dungeon master guy, and it got me thinking about you know role playing, tabletop role playing as a hobby, and five dollars will get you probably a thousand dice of various descriptions, sizes and faces. So, you know, if you ever needed a, an eight-sider, you can have that thrown in there. Uh, most uh, game shops will actually have a little grab bag where you can just plunge your fist into this box full of dice and pull out some for, you know, like uh, a few bucks. So that seems like a pretty good deal if you weren't aware of an already better deal, which is to give it to us here at Seeing and Believing. Yeah, just go on to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Kevin, throughout our entire review, we did not once say 
that Star-Lord and Spider-Man were starring in a movie together. We totally missed that. We say Chris Pratt and Tom Holland, but we didn't make the connection. Yeah, well, you know, I I do try to block out the memory of the of the movies that they have starred in in with the you know Avengers Endgame. So you know, it may maybe not so surprising to me, but it, it was a missed opportunity for sure. Missed opportunity. If you are a Patreon supporter, then you can send us recommendations and hopefully make sure that that doesn't happen again. Um, I can't believe we didn't make a joke somewhere, but yeah. Once again, patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Yeah, $5 will will get you that. And we also love giving back to our patrons in some small way. We have a special bonus episode for all of our patrons uh, who couldn't get enough of our best films of the decade episode. So we've got the bonus episode where we count down our 11 through 20 that should be heading out to their feeds in a little bit you can get on in on that as well if you don't want to give the five dollars to the podcast though you can always donate it to christandpopculture.com where they have lots of great writing going up on the site every single week and we actually have the triumphant return of one luke t harrington on the website, Wade. Uh, yeah. Longtime readers of the site know Luke as the columnist who often wrote about strange or and or funny things related to historical Christianity or the Bible. That went on hiatus, but he's back, Wade, with a new column called Fads, Crazes, Panics, each of those words followed by an exclamation point. Every other Wednesday in Fads, Crazes, Panics, Luke Harrington looks at one of the random obsessions to have gripped the public mind in the recent past and tries in vain to make sense of it all. The latest uh, instance of that column is about pet rocks. I never had a pet rock, Wade, mm. but Luke takes a pretty funny look at it, and uh, it, it's a fun read, so definitely check that out if you are on ChristPopCulture.com. Just click on over there. Yeah, it's definitely great to see Luke make his triumphant return to the site uh, very much appreciate um most most if not all of the work that he's produced for christ and pop culture once again listeners make sure to email us if you have any thoughts seeing and believing capc at gmail.com you can also tweet us at c believe pod pod and it's always great to get reviews on iTunes, plus subscribes are big. When people subscribe, it bumps us up on iTunes. It gets the word out on the podcast. So if you haven't rated and reviewed us, make sure to do that. And you can subscribe. Just hop on over to iTunes and search Seeing and Believing. She's the natural daughter of nobody knows who. She reckons Probably no separate Her allowance is very liberal. Nothing has been grudged for her improvement. She is known only as a parlor boarder at a common school. She is pretty and she is good-tempered. And that is all. That is all. These are not trivial recommendations, Mr. Knightley. Till men do fall in love with well-informed minds instead of handsome faces, a girl with such loveliness as Harriet has a certainty of being admired and sought after wherever she goes. I am very much mistaken if your sex in general would not find these qualities the highest claims a woman could possess. We're back, intrepid travelers, with the second half of our show, and I, your dungeon master, will lead you through this second segment. <laughs> is it a, I, is I, it a Jane Austen role-playing game? No, <laughs> although I've, I've heard that there, 
there are modules out there for that sort of thing. If okay. you're if you can't get enough of Austin, you want to role play your way through <laughs> some of it. I think there is a module that actually lets you do that, or at least you know it's a store maybe not a full role playing game, but it's a storytelling collaborative sort of thing that lets you do that. Mm. I also know that up here in Chicago. They've got the improvised Jane Austen show that you can actually go see. Oh. So, you know, every week this troupe gets together and they take a suggestion from the audience and they spin sort of this Austen-like story out of that. So um, that sounds pretty fun, too. Mm-hmm. But, Wade, since we are, of course, a film and television podcast, we're going yeah. to leave those be and actually talk about the latest movie adaptation of an Austen novel. That would be director Autumn DeWilde's adaptation of Emma. This one stars Anya Taylor-Joy as the title character, a high society socialite who takes a special interest in matchmaking people so that they fit into her ideal vision for polite married society. But when her match for her friend Harriet, played by Mia Goth, unexpectedly falls through, romantic complications multiply for pretty much everyone. Wade, you've told me in the past off the air that you've lately been kind of working your way through Jane Austen's body of work, reading her novels one at a time. So that probably makes you a little bit more of an expert than me on this particular film. I have not actually read Emma. I believe you have. So I'm really curious to know what you think of Autumn DeWilde's adaptation. How does it work as a film on its own merits? And also, how does it work as an adaptation of Jane Austen's unique sensibility? Yeah, so I I, I think it was when we reviewed Love and Friendship, I think you had asked me about Jane Austen, and I told you that I had read Emma in high school and didn't remember much. And of course, Love and Friendship is an adaptation of the novella Lady Susan, and the title Love and Friendship comes from, I believe, a short story that Austen wrote when when she was young, maybe a teenager. And and so I kind of got interested in it and her work. And so in the last, I don't know, maybe a little over a year, so I read Persuasion and Northanger Abbey and Pride and Prejudice, and I just finished Emma again. And I am so scared to talk about Jane Austen because there are so many people who have studied her work, and I'm like, oh, like if I make a pronouncement pronouncement about her as a writer, then I, you know, could offend all of these people and be totally wrong. Um, but the general kind of just that I get, and I tell people is, you know, when we think of Jane Austen, many people, they think of this kind of, you know, romance. Uh, Jane Austen's a very masculine writer, and her films are more about class and class distinctions um, than they are specifically about romance. And I think the same is with Emma, which is more of a, a straightforward comedy uh, versus some of her other books. Of course, her other works are they're all very funny. Um, this one is, uh, I, I think Emma is, is hilarious. And it's really fascinating to read the book and then watch DeWilde's film and to see her take. And I, I like the movie. Uh, I, I think the movie uh, is, is pretty good. And I, I think what DeWilde does well is she understands that at the heart of this story are a group of people who are very indulgent. And at the end of the movie, of course, in the story, Emma does begin to make a change. 
But that doesn't absolve her of everything. And that doesn't ab absolve the people around her of everything. And so DeWild um, makes great strides to, in some ways, even exaggerate a bit more what Austin is uh, saying here. So I, I like to think of Austin as kind of the sly writer, and she's inserting her cultural critiques beneath layers of, of romance, intrigue, and high-class society. At the same time, her cultural critiques are not completely hidden. And I would say if, if you're basically paying attention, you're going you're gonna to get it. Wilde's approach could be categorized in a similar way. Emma, on its surface, the film, it, it's funny, it's enchanting, it's a romance story, but it is about indulgent people. And we can enjoy these characters and we can enjoy the story, but we can also dig a little bit deeper and understand the growing that these characters have to do. So that's kind of a long-winded way of saying I think this film works in many senses because it, it does understand that this isn't just a romance. There's something bigger going on here. And uh, the wild, uh, I think, uh, captures some of that. I really enjoyed this film too. And I think that part of my appreciation for it can be traced to something you just mentioned about growth, about how um, these characters, and particularly Emma, do undergo a lot of growth in this film. And I feel like, uh, you know, Austin has a lot of strengths, but one thing that I appreciate about this film in particular is I feel like more so than the the average Austin story, or at least the, the ones that I have uh, read and seen adaptations of, is this one, Emma is is a character with, with many flaws, um, but this film really takes her through a lot of change. In, in, for instance, Pride and Prejudice, I don't feel that its main strength is making Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet terribly dynamic characters, by which I mean that they do undergo change, but their change primarily is in how they see each other and how maybe they see a couple of the other characters. With Emma, at least in this adaptation, I can't speak to the novel, um, in this adaptation, Anya Taylor-Joy's portrayal of of Emma really takes her from somebody who is who has some serious flaws and through her, her interactions with a whole range of characters kind of takes her on this incremental growth from somebody who kind of has a very tidy view of human nature and of class and society. And over the course of the film, that gets complicated and Emma changes herself along with her changing understanding of those dynamics. And I think that that's something really special. It's something I really appreciated about this film. And it made me really um, excited to maybe revisit it someday and just sort of, now that I've, I've got a better handle on the narrative, just kind of appreciate the the little grace notes and the various thematic subtleties that are worked throughout this this picture. Yeah, you know, the 1990 film, 1995 film, Clueless, I, I love the title because that's a great way to describe Emma's character. She's just kind of clueless about everything around her, her place in society, the relationships of the people that she meets, and her eyes are slowly opened along the way, and she begins to truly see herself. And 
here we get this journey where Mr. Knightley's character, who's, of course, played by Johnny Flynn, he sees Emma for for who she truly is. He sees the good, and he also sees the bad. And I really appreciate that DeWilde, especially in this context, she she's able to thread the needle of a character that we like and we like to see on screen and we enjoy, but we also understand that she has she has flaws. And part of what interests me in this movie is the some of the religious elements. Now, Austin's father uh, was a minister, and we definitely get hints of religion in her book, but there's never really this sense where we we really dive deep into that world. And it's also fascinating that this film begins before uh, Mrs. Weston gets married. And in the book, it starts right after that. And so we get more scenes in church. And there are these, these hymns, these religious Christian hymns that often occur over some of the transitions and some of the actions in the movie. And then when Emma makes this this big turn in the film, uh, she's she's walking up these stairs and it's this great act of, of penance and repentance. And the music below that scene makes it feel like it's almost like this altar call. Like she's walking down some sort of religious aisle in a way and that this change is tied to something else. So it's fascinating to see DeWilde take some of these ideas that are that are almost in the background, uh, just coming, hovering beneath the surface and sort of prop them up just a little bit, uh, especially as it pertains to the religious elements. And I, I thought that that worked out pretty well. I'm glad you brought up the the music because I think it's really special in this film. Uh, David Schweitzer and Isabel Waller Bridge are kind of the the people who are in charge of shaping the the musical soundscape of this film. And you're right that it adds so much to this adaptation by making it clear that I, I feel like a lot of Austin adaptations they, it's all about you know, kind of this this comedy of manners, which is fitting. There's nothing wrong with that, but it feels very much like the focus is on characters sitting in drawing rooms, verbally fencing with each other, um, and there being comedy and romance and drama that arises out of that. With this, especially because of the musical choices, it really situates these characters in a world that is very much uh, defined by religion. There are hymns that uh, occur over the soundtrack that are, are very beautiful. I actually wanted to stay through the, the credits the first time I saw this just so I could you know, see what pieces they were singing and also who was singing them because they have these really great choral arrangements that feel very period appropriate and also just place the emphasis on the fact that these are religious characters and regardless of of how big of an impact in their day-to-day lives their faith has it's still kind of in the ether around them and i think that that 
makes Emma's growth and especially her interactions with Mr. Knightley, where he kind of urges her towards uh, greater understanding and uh, more kindness and understanding to the people around her, that lends it a kind of uh, weight of intentional virtue that really takes this film above and beyond and made me appreciate it all the more. Yeah, no, I I think so too. And I... I... I'm also surprised by the use of the background servants uh, because in the book, we really, I don't think we, we even hear any of the names of the servants or, or if we do, it's just kind of in passing. I don't even know if any of them have um, any lines of dialogue. And here we get these uh, characters who are, uh, they are characters. They are trying to make these uh these individuals happy uh they get scared or worried when something goes wrong um characters yell at them and i i appreciate how this is one of those movies that seems to say hey there are lots of people around this particular class of people who don't necessarily get their say or get their due and i'm going to bring them to the forefront and i think that really kind of goes along with the spirit of Austin's book because you have Mrs. Bates' character. And, you know, Austin just does this crazy good job of of highlighting the character and the annoyances of that character. And, you know, there could be a whole page of just Mrs. Bates just going on and on and on and on and talking. And yet when Emma says something extremely rude, we feel it. And I appreciate how DeWild takes some of these characters uh, that are often brushed to the side and says, let's let's try to see what's going on in their world. Let's put ourselves maybe in their position just for a moment because that's what the film is all about. It's about the high class at least reaching down in some ways to the lower class. And originally, this is done just because that's what you're supposed to do. Like, that you're just supposed to do that. You're supposed to help people who are poorer than you. And then it gets to the point where I want to do that. This is not just an obligation. It's something that is beneficial to me as much as it is uh, to them. And I, I think that DeWell kind of emphasized that, emphasizes that, um, you know, across this picture. Yeah, and the performances i think really need to be called out in this picture because i think they're they're uniformly great and especially in that scene that you're talking about where emma says something you know kind of casually cruel she's she's being her usual witty self but that wit kind of comes at others expense and in this scene you see the fallout of that wit accidentally coming out uh, to another person's face. And DeWild keeps her camera, so she doesn't show a reaction shot of Mrs. Bates right away. She keeps the camera on Anya Taylor-Joy's faces. She says this casually tossed off, uh, cruel comment, and then realizes what she's just said. And the camera is on her that entire time. And DeWild, and I think what's a really uh, very canny directorial choice just kind of lets you sit with that moment as you see the realization dawn on Emma's face and then you feel the realization yourself 
And then she cuts to the reaction shot of Mrs. Bates. And in that in that way, she doesn't try to tug on your heartstrings by making uh, making you feel pity for for Mrs. Bates. She gets you by making you realize how cruel Emma was. So it's it's less about pity and it's more about realizing just how how badly done indeed it was, to quote Mr. Knightley. And I think that choices like that and the ability of the cast to carry moments like that make all the difference in this adaptation. Yeah, and, and you know, this is a movie, too, as I mentioned, about learning to see, right? Our vision of ourselves and our vision of other people. And I, I don't know, I, I mean, I guess this, this has to be ten- intentional, but... Anya Taylor-Joy, the way that she uses her eyes and the way that the camera watches her eyes, uh, we get the sense that she's perceiving things and she's registering things and things are happening in her world. And, and that's important for a film that's an adaptation of a piece of literature because right, we can hear the, or read the person's thoughts on page, but it's different when it's translated to screen. And so just kind of capturing those those eyes, and I think that's part of DeWild, uh, you could say, you know, she did it with the camera, but also it just goes to show you how much, uh, how talented Taylor Joy is here. And she's kind of, we see her just registering things. And the beginning of the film, of course, she's off about everything. Uh, but when she begins to make that turn and when new revelations come, those eyes, they start to change. And we see other things registering in them, which is just, it just goes to show how talented the people are who are making this film and, and how talented, um, Taylor Joy is. I, I think it is great that I read the book right before I watched the movie. Um, I, I think it allowed me to concentrate on bigger things than just the story. Uh, at the same time, there were some, uh, emotional moments in the movie, uh, that, didn't play as well as I thought they would for me. And I think that's because when, you know, you have this book and you're building up to these moments and Austin is just, she does this incredible job of, of, of making situations feel so awkward and, and, and strange. And then building up to these emotional climaxes that I don't know that it's possible to read her book and then watch a movie and feel fully satisfied. Um, but I think this is a really great stylistic adaptation that's just straightforward enough um, to be connected to the book, but also different enough to stand on its own. Yeah, that might be the the classic problem where you you read the book and there's it's hard for a movie to fully live up to the the way that you picture it in your mind. Fortunately, I'm unencumbered by that, so I can say that all all of those moments worked like gangbusters for me. So that's what you get for reading books, Wade. Is <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, but you know that's just, just a problem. To you. Yeah, it's just I think it's going to be a problem either way. And so I'm fascinated with with watching this, you know, later. And uh, but yeah, I know I think it's really good. But yeah, don't ever read books ever. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, Anya Taylor Joy being really good. I was kind of blown away by Johnny Flynn as Knightley in this picture. I wasn't familiar with uh, his his career in the past. Um, he's not done a whole lot of film work. He's done a lot of television work that I haven't had the chance to see. But he just he's really very good as Knightley in this, and he does a great job of 
being the the sort of of presence on camera where he's not immediately stealing any scene that he's in, but he seems he, he's very steady and he when when he needs to really um, hit an emotional note, like for instance when he takes pity on Harriet at a dance, or when he essentially tells off Emma for her her cruel comment to another character. Those moments, he really does hit exactly the right note. He's very good as well. Yeah, and I will say this, that uh, that big moment where Emma says something uh, really rude to Mrs. Bates, I think the film nails. And then, like you mentioned, Flynn nails the response. I mean, that that whole sequence is just so well done because it's such a powerful moving moment and it it works so well and it yeah it just goes to show you uh, the wild's talent and then just all the performances here are, are really great listeners that is our review of emma period the stylistic adaptation of jane austen's novel we want to hear your thoughts if you've seen the film make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod at cbeliefpod on twitter or you can email us seeing and believing capc at gmail.com Kevin, we've reached the part of the show where we recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. What would you like to recommend this week? Well, since we are uh, talking about sort of a comedy of manners and and a romance and and all of that, it seemed appropriate for for me to recommend uh, Xavier Dolan's 2010 film Heartbeats. This is a, a movie that's essentially about a love triangle. It's about a a young woman and her male best friend and the love triangle that forms when they both focus on the same young man and kind of vie with each other for his affections. It's all really sharply realized. There's there's a moment when uh, the the female protagonist has a uh, an, ex- an embarrassing experience at a party and she kind of goes into the bathroom to sort of shake it off a little bit and the moment that she kind of shares with her own reflection in a mirror is something that I think we can all relate to when we've been in similar situations. Um, so it's it's just a great kind of romantic comedy from that angle. What I think pushes it over the top for me is Dolan's choice to include these little um, docu- documentary-like sec- sequences throughout the film where he interviews actual people about their own experiences with heartbreak and romantic awkwardness and intercuts that with the fictional story of this love triangle. And I think that that is simultaneously very funny, it's deeply felt, and it's really original. It's not an approach that I've seen in any other romantic comedy, so I appreciated it quite a bit. Uh, 2010's Heartbeats from director Xavier Dolan is my recommendation for this week. I have uh, I've not seen that, but um, yeah, I really I really like that uh, description, and uh, definitely going to mark those down. I I feel like my list every week, Kevin, gets longer and longer of films to watch uh, because you do such a good job of just recommending new stuff. Uh, so you're going to have to get worse at that. So my stack <laughs> I'll, goes down. I'll, I'll do I'll do my best. <laughs> so uh, my recommendation this week, I, I think it's a. A little vanilla uh you know i would tell people hey go out and read emma if you can i 
I'm just really loving Jane Austen's work. Um, but I recently had a chance, uh, after I read Pride and Prejudice, to watch Joe Wright's version, 2005 of Pride and Prejudice. And I really like that version a lot. It's not perfect, but I think the performances are very good. I think uh, Kira Knightley is, is wonderful in that picture. And I especially like the long takes that Wright gives us of these characters and these settings and these just kind of awkward interactions. And there are a number of awkward interactions that I think that Wright nails um, that are described by Austin in the book. So uh, I'm going to just go with an easy one this week and say, hey, if you haven't seen the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice, it's a really good one. Um, Read the book and then uh, check it out. Yeah, that's an interesting adaptation. It's it's one that I get a little bit conflicted about because I think that it's just an absolutely gorgeously shot picture. Joe Wright, I think, is a very good director just on in a visual sense alone. But it weirdly, for the material, it almost feels like Wright really loves the images and doesn't really love the dialogue, which it feels to me almost as if the dialogue gets short shrift in that adaptation, which for an Austin adaptation seems seems a little bit strange. So I don't know if that's just me or not, but I, I remember that being my takeaway from seeing it a few years ago was, man, what a gorgeous picture. I'm not sure it's a great Austin adaptation, though. <laughs> so I, I don't know. Well, that that is the, the weaker element, I think, of the movie. And sometimes it feels like the, the film is trying so hard to have Austin-esque dialogue even pulling certain pieces of dialogue it feels like straight from the pages um and that doesn't always translate to screen and sometimes it feels like the characters are 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 trying so hard to nail this dialogue that they're kind of missing the spirit of the dialogue so i think that i think you're onto something they just sort of like plow they just sort of plow through it rather than uh Letting it sing, I guess. I, I don't know. It's still, it's, but it's still a very, very good picture. I mean, you can't go too wrong with Pride and Prejudice. That's a really sturdy story to be adapting, and Joe Wright does a pretty good job with it. Yeah. Overall. Oh yeah, the camera work just kind of blew me away as I you know, as I watched it this time. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed our episode. I'll remind you again to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe. That's all we have for you today. But your homework. You can go rate and you can go review and you can go subscribe. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com and our Patreon supporters. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. We truly appreciate Jonathan. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.